So I want to begin the sermon this afternoon with a quick question for all of you. What do Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Beyonce, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson all have in common? That trumped you, didn't it? Maybe somebody's got it. Now, of course, some of those people are not living. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, obviously, long since gone. Winston Churchill, long since gone. But I'll repeat the question. What do President Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of this country, Sir Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of Britain during the Second World War, uh, Beyonce, famous singer, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson all have in common? It wasn't that they all went to the same church, nor did they all have the same political affiliation. I'll solve the question for you in just a moment. But I'll begin with another question, and now you may begin to see where I'm going with this. Have you ever had the blues? Have you ever had the blues? Have you ever been really, really low? Have there ever been days in your life when you felt so bad about things that you didn't want to get out of bed? Or, on the other hand, days in your life when you'd get home from work or from college and you wanted to, and you had that question in your mind, how early can I be in bed happened to a lot of people. Depression is the subject of this afternoon's sermon. Depression, and in case you hadn't guessed, those four individuals that I mentioned all suffered from or currently suffer from depression. It's surprising how many people have been impacted by depression and still are. The percentage of U.S. adults who report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime has reached 29% nearly 10 percentage points higher than in 2015. This is from Gallup.com. The percentage of Americans who currently have or are being treated for depression has also increased to 17.8% being treated for or currently have, up about seven points over the same period. Both rates are the highest recorded by Gallup since it began measuring depression using the current form of data collection in 2015. The most recent results obtained February 21st through 28th, 2023, are based on 5,167 U.S. adults surveyed by the web as part of the Gallup panel, a probability-based panel of about 100,000 adults across all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Respondents were asked, has a doctor or nurse nurse ever told you that you have depression? And do you currently have or are you currently being treated for depression? Both metrics are part of the ongoing Gallup National Health and Wellbeing Index. Over one-third of women, 36.7%, over one-third, now report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime, compared with 20.4% of men. The rate has risen at nearly twice the rate of men since 2017. Those aged 18 to 29, 34.3%, and 30 to 44, 34.9%, have significantly greater depression diagnosis rates in their lifetime than those older than 44. Women, 23.8%, and adults aged 18 to 29, 24.6%, also have the highest rates of current depression or treatment for depression. 
These two groups, as well as adult, adults aged 30 to 44, have the fastest rising rates compared with the 2017 estimates. Also, I think we should mention another group of people here, mentioned at the end of this article from Gallup.com. Young adults, in turn, are more likely to be single and to report loneliness, particularly so during the pandemic. They also need more social time to boost their mood than older adults, something directly impacted by COVID-19. Daily experiences of sadness, worry, and anger, all of which are closely related to depression, are highest for those under 30 and those with lower income levels. And like women, young adults and people of color were disproportionately likely to lose their jobs altogether due to the pandemic. Depression, getting the blues, it's gotten worse over the last few years. Switching gears a little bit, let's mention uh, one of the individuals I mentioned a moment ago, and we'll come up to the modern world again in a moment. You're probably aware of this, Abraham Lincoln, very famous president of the United States of America, the one who is credited with abolishing slavery, suffered from depression. This is recognized by the historians. On January 1st, 1841, Lincoln broke up with Mary Todd, the woman he would later marry in November 1842. Afterwards, later in January of 1841, he entered a period of depression. He was absent from the Illinois State Legislature from January 13th to 19th, due to illness, most likely due to some sort of melancholy, which was most likely was due to his ending his relationship with Mary Todd. On January 23, 1841, Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter to John T. Stewart, his first law partner. In the letter, Lincoln stated, quote, I am now the most miserable man living, if what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. <clears throat> to remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Not a very happy letter. Winston Churchill, across the pond, also suffered from de depression. Churchill often suffered from fits of depression, which could last for weeks. But these bouts did not slow him down. He acted as if he was driven and denied himself rest or relaxation. It was like he was afraid to slow down or stop. Part of this drive was to satisfy his tremendous ego. When circumstances forced him from his positions of power and activity, Churchill fell under the black cloud of depression. This happened to him when he left the Admiralty in 1915, when he was out of office during the 1930s, when he was defeated in the election of 1945, and then again after his final resignation. He nicknamed his depression his Black Dog. I've got a list in my notes of a lot of other famous individuals down through history, modern personalities, including, surprisingly, quite a number of comedians like Drew Carey, um, Bill Oddy, musicians, John Lennon, we heard about music in the uh, sermonette, Marie Osmond. More recently, I was reading an article titled 15 Celebrities Who Are Living with Depression. These included Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, actor John Hamm, singer Demi Lovato, who says, quote, I'm living proof that you never have to give in to these thoughts. 
I've had many days where I've struggled, but please let this song be an anthem to anyone who needs it right now. You can get through whatever it is you're going through. GoodMorningAmerica.com Cheryl Crow, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Do tough guys get the blues? Apparently they do. Johnson said he wrestled with his mental health and described struggling with depression after his college football career ended and later after his divorce from his first wife, Danny Garcia, in 2008. He said this time he was able to identify his depression and lean on friends. Quote, I knew what it was at that time, and luckily I had some good friends that I could lean on and say, hey, I'm feeling a little bit wobbly now. I've got a little struggle happening, said Johnson. Well, a lot of people, it's very, very common, very common. Now, I think in the Church of God, at times we sort of view ourselves as supermen and superwomen. It's interesting, when I mentioned this to uh, the class yesterday, and I was telling them what I was planning on speaking on today, it was surprising how many messages I got. Yes, talk about this subject private messages from individuals who told me that they had suffered from it, or in some cases that they had known someone who'd suffered from it. You know what? If you go all the way through life, this life, and you're never impacted by depression, you're going to be pretty unusual, even if you don't have it yourself. Now, something that has happened over the last few years and is really a major cause of concern involves the young folks. Youth depression has gone up quite significantly. Um, another article, theguardian.com, young people are growing ever more depressed. Is modern life to blame? Jean Hannah Edelstein, our mental health has suffered over the past 80 years. The causes are complex, but it's exhausting to live in a society where asking for help equals failure. Anxiety and depression are isolating illnesses, but sufferers are hardly alone. According to a new book, the number of young Americans who struggle with these mental issues over the last 80 years has increased steadily. Sociologist Jean Twenge, the author of Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before, told New York Magazine this week that her research had led her to conclude that, quote, modern life is not good for mental health. By measuring the frequency of symptoms associated with anxiety and depression, poor sleep, memory problems, concentration problems, difficulty learning, Twenge came to believe that our forefathers and mothers were much happier than we are today, or at least that they were less depressed and anxious. The upswing in the, the author of this article, The Guardian, March 16, 2016, writes, This upswing in mental illness doesn't surprise me. I am one of those young Americans, or rather I was. Twenty years ago, I was first diagnosed with and treated for major depression. I was 14 years old. I'm less young now, but I know that it's likely that I'll always be depressive. That's a sad comment, isn't it? As far as problems go, it doesn't feel like the end of the world. In the last two decades, I've learned to manage my illness well enough. Like my hay fever, it flares up only on occasion. And for the most part, I can deal with it and move on without the symptoms causing too much disruption to the rest of my life. But in this, I realize I'm very fortunate to have had the resources required to get the help I need and have needed. They are resources that, are too many, that too many young Americans lack. 
I wanted to comment here in this context, especially with young people, um, about social media. Now, I think we've published on this. The church has published on this. I'm not much of a fan of social media. Uh, maybe you are. I'm not much of a fan. Social media have a very, very mixed report card, in my opinion, in what they've done in the culture, and that's a whole big subject of them by itself. But one of the things that social media does, and I want to address in particular the young people here because this is important, you go on social media and the impression that is given, this happens to adults as well as young people, but the impression, because everybody is on vacation, everyone's smiling, they are all going out on the yacht on the lake, they're at a nice restaurant, and the impression given is everyone is having fun except for me. And you know what? It's really pretty false. Yes, everyone is having fun, but all the people who are having fun have their moments when they're not having fun. But you take pictures when you're having fun. And so one of the Im impressions that social media has, has, have given is everyone is having fun except for me. Adults as well can also fall into that trap. It's a phony representation of the way human life is. And we need to keep that in mind when we look at the social media. Popularity also. How many friends have you got on Facebook? You know, uh, big deal. You know, does it really matter? Are they really your friends? But these are, this is something else that is feeding in to depression among the young people. All right, let's get to the Bible then because this is a sermon after all. Uh, it's surprising how many personalities in the Bible, Old Testament and New, suffered from depression. We sometimes read right over some of the accounts of depression in the Bible. But Hagar, Abraham's concubine, not surprisingly, being exiled and sent out of her home, went into what we can only describe as melancholy or depression. Job, read the book of Job, especially as you get toward those last chapters in the book of Job. If that isn't depression, I don't know what is. King Saul We'll come to him in a moment. We'll talk about him, one of the points here. King David. We read the Psalms about King David going through the valley of death. And we think, well, maybe that was just because he was being pursued by his enemies. No, there's a little bit more to it than that. Prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Habakkuk, the Apostle Paul as well. So if you have had moments of depression you're in really pretty good company. Now, of course, we think about that and we say, okay, in God's church, you know, deep down, we think to ourselves, well, you know, I'm one of the saints of God. I've got God's Holy Spirit. Surely not. Well, in actual fact, it's not true. And when you, when you talk to people, when we talk to people, we realize that's not the case. God's people get the blues. God's people suffer depression. There have been instances of ministers in the church who have had depression. There have been many examples of church members who have suffered from depression. Now, before we get into the biblical stance on depression, let me give a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm not giving medical advice. I'm not trained in medicine. Some problems are chemical, not spiritual. I think in the past we often viewed anything that had an emotional manifestation as being spiritual in nature. That's not true. Uh, but I would comment here before getting into discussing this subject, when somebody is suffering from severe depression, uh, that's very, very serious, and that person needs to have, or someone close to them, needs to have an emergency cord, because that can, of course, lead to suicide. 
But what about us? What about us as God's people when we get the blues, when we go into depression? We can if we're not careful, and sometimes depression works this way. Um, When we get down, we can go into a spiral. Life has done us wrong. Everything has been taken away. We focus on the bad stuff. Depression is a little bit like uh, a country and western song. I lost my truck, I lost my boots, I lost my girl, I lost everything. You know what? Everybody from time to time goes through tough times. And depression can be tied in with self-pity. Self-pity can be very, very damaging. Everyone, I'm sure every last person in this congregation has taken their licks at one point. Had something happened to them that was hurtful, something that damaged not just physically, but emotionally. Let's take a look at the sad story of King Saul in 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22, and this is one of the points that I'd like to make that I think we actually can control with God's help. 1 Samuel 22. And I'd like to read in verses 6 through 8. This is Samuel as he's, the kingdom is beginning to slip away from him. And I find this very, very sad. 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the, and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? He's going to be your man and not me? A little bit of exaggeration here. All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. Jonathan there, of course. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Here we've got the king of Israel pleading for others to uh, pity him. And self-pity is something to be avoided. We can all do this, you know, because we've all had our licks. Uh, Who has not? You don't go all the way through life without having something happen to you that is unjust. And you can sit there on the couch and say, life has been unfair to me. I'm no use to anyone, as people will often say when they go through depression. And then you get into this vortex, and it's down and down and down. Depression is something that has to be fought, unlike other emotional disorders which, like bipolar, which require specialized treatment and sometimes uh, medication, often medication of some, some kind. Let's take a look at another example in Jeremiah 15. So this is point number one, avoid self-pity. Avoid self-pity. I won't ask for a show of hands who's ever felt tempted to go into a little self-pity. It would be too personal. Jeremiah 15, verse 15. Jeremiah 15, verse 15. Look at Jeremiah. Now, if anyone had cause for going through a little self-pity, it was him. You know, he went through absolute misery, abused by his own people. Jeremiah 15, verse 15, O Lord, this is one of Jeremiah's so-called confessions. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. I've been a good guy. I've been a member of the church. 
and I suffered for it. We can have that thought in mind as well. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Again, the same sentiment. I've been a good guy. I've served you, God. And look at where I am now. Verse 17, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. You filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you sh- now look at this in verse 18. Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? That's pretty strong words for a prophet of God to direct against his God. It was, it was a spiral of self-pity. Look in verse verse 19, God's response to him. God actually tells him at this point he's got something to repent of. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, return, repent. I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them, the people, the sinning people, return to you, but you must not return to them. So that's point number one, and it's something we can get into when we suffer the blues. We can begin to indulge self-pity. We can begin to make a list of things where life has done us wrong or we think life has done us wrong, and then we have a difficulty digging our way out of that. Beware of that. Beware of that spiral. But what is to be done talking here about uh, attitudes and emotions and so on. Point number two, and let's take a look at this. I want to go to the example of the prophet Elijah. Elijah in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 13. 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 13. You've read this story, poor old Elijah in the cave. You know, I feel badly for him. I've never had to live in a cave I don't think any of you have had to live in a cave, nor have I ever had a bloodthirsty woman out for my guts. First Kings 19, verse 13. Uh, so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. This is after he heard the famous still small voice. And he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's in a bad situation. He's all on his own. But he's also indulging self-pity. And he said, verse uh, 14, uh, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. I've been the good guy. I prophesied on your behalf, and he had. And they're after me. And they had killed the prophets, and so on. Look at what God says to him here. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you've got things to do. You've got things to do. Anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And, uh, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Yehu, will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha, will kill. The interesting point here is not just Elijah's frame of mind. Surely he was going through depression. Surely he felt 
tempted to go into this, woe is me, I've been a good guy, and look at what has happened to me. The interesting thing is to note, God gave him something to do. God gave him something to do. That's the point. Winston Churchill, historians have said that the war saved his sanity. Some view Sir Winston Churchill as a modern-day prophet. And so, when the blues begin to bite at us, we've got to do something. Doing nothing makes it worse. We should do something that's demanding, something that requires concentration. Not necessarily something that's fun. If you can find something that's fun, that's good. But something absorbing, something that's satisfying. Art, composing music, as we heard in the sermonette. Learning new computer software. I suppose that might throw people into deeper depression, but some people are into that kind of thing. Writing, reading, volunteer work, maybe. At all costs, don't be a self-pitying couch potato. Don't be a self-pitying couch potato. So that's point number two. Do something. Do something. Sometimes when people get into that, into that emotional funk, they become passive and don't feel like doing anything. But when that happens, you've got to kind of force yourself a little bit. Point number three, still following off from this story of Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, and uh, verse 9 is uh, verse 9 I'd like to read here. 1 Kings 19 and verse 9. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Where was Elijah? He was in the cave. He was in the cave. Not a very good place to be when you're feeling low. And in verse 11, he's told to go out of the cave and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Sometimes solitude makes things worse. Being alone, kind of barricading yourself in, in your lowness, your emotional low. I had a friend years ago who had a very difficult time in his life. He and his wife drew the blinds of their house uh, and actually put black plastic trash sacks on the windows. I thought that was exactly the wrong thing for them to do. It was a critical moment in their, in their lives. Um, light. Light is a big factor as well. Uh, the light, the way it Im- impacts us. Maybe just uh, getting out. You know, we spend so much time in buildings these days. I live in a building. I work in a building. Often we don't get out of buildings. And yet, getting outside of the building and enjoying the outdoors is helpful for us. Seasonal affective disorder. If you live in a place like Finland, you understand it. Sunlight is believed to affect the production of endorphins. These hormones play a role in giving us a sense of well-being and happiness. Researchers are also studying the link between lack of sunlight and the effects on melatonin, serotonin, and other hormones, as well as the lack of sunlight and its effect on the body's circadian rhythms. If the lack of sunshine affects these hormones to produce a type of depression, sometimes called seasonal affective disorder, Sunshine and the proper exposure to it would reverse this and allow our bodies to produce those hormones naturally and give us the happy feelings. 
Now, I'm not a medical doctor, but I think it's actually fairly well established now that lack of vitamin D is one of the contributing factors in in depression. It has a negative impact on many parts of many other aspects of the body as well, the bones and so on. Uh, Vitamin D, you know, you can... Pop, you can top up your vitamin D just by going in this kind of weather where the sun is out, uh, it's hot out, but going out and enjoying a walk in the park or if you've got nice walking trails where you live, uh, go out and see the sun and let the sun fall on your arms and uh, top up the vitamin D. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 7. Book of Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 7. It's interesting how this was not unknown to the ancient writers. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 7. Here Solomon writes, Truly the light is sweet. It is, isn't it? It's nice to see the light. Good to see the sun. And it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. It has an effect on us. Um, it helps us to feel a little bit better. So, go out. Go out and see the sun. I wanted to comment, and I'm moving now on to point number four in the sermon. And uh, from, even from my own experience here, uh, I went through some of this myself at uh, the time that Ambassador College was closing. I actually was there and prior, up until almost the last year of Ambassador College. And uh, I'll never forget what happened when uh, I lost my job at Ambassador College or Ambassador University, as it, was feel, uh, as it was called back then. And I had to sell my house and lost a lot of friends and lost my job and uh, lost my paycheck and lost my status as, a, as, a, as an elder in the church that I was part of at the time. And it was not a very happy time. Now, some of you, I think, can identify with this because you remember the 1990s. It impacted a lot of people in many different ways. I'll never forget going through all of that. It was, uh, it was not a good time. Lost everything. And I kind of sat there and I thought, see, I knew what was going on. I knew I was depressed. It wasn't severe depression, but it was nasty. I wasn't enjoying it one little bit. You know, it was uh, that kind of experience where I'd get home from work. I was working in a public high school, get home from work, and the thought was, how early can I be in bed? Because I was depressed. It was not happy. And I, I kind of thought for a while, what am I supposed to do about this? I know what's going on, and what am I supposed to do? And I'm going to tell you what I did, because actually it was very, very simple, a good decision that I me. There was a little gym out there in Longview, Texas, where I lived at the time. Little gym, nice clean gym, where they had classes and they had weights and so on. And I joined the gym and I began to do some exercise. And they had these classes where, you know, they combined kind of combined cardio and combined weights as well. And uh, I'll never forget this. It actually makes me feel a bit emotional now when I talk about it. I'll never forget it. But I remember joining that gym and beginning to just work out. And it wasn't, you know, Superman workouts. It was just fairly simple, straightforward workouts. And I did this for about two or three weeks. And then suddenly I stopped and I thought to myself, what's happened? The melancholy has gone. The sadness, the depression lifted in under a month. Uh, My point being here that exercise can be a very good antidote to depression. Exercise produces endorphins. And those endorphins, which our bodies produce naturally when we do some form of exercise, are 
likely more powerful antidepressants than the chemical antidepressants. And I'll never forget that. In fact, I remember talking with a lady in the church who commented on something about that effect, about the effect of exercise. She told me something I'd never thought about. The kind of exercise that produces rapid movement produces more endorphins. You go out running. Now, all exercise produces that effect. But uh, exercise is very helpful. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, let's just read this briefly. The Apostle Paul makes a comment now. Now, of course, he's comparing physical exercise with spiritual exercise. But he does make a comment here. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, he says that bodily exercise profits a little. Godliness is profitable for all things. Bodily exercise can be very, very helpful. Walking is much underestimated. It's a very good form of exercise for those who are young and healthy and don't have any kind of handicap. Uh, swimming, jogging, aerobics, tennis, racquetball, these things can be very helpful. Anyway, that helped me, and I think others have felt that that has helped them as well. So that's point number four. Point number five is an obvious point. Point number five is an obvious point. Let's go to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. Jonah got the blues, not surprising. Miserable time he went through as well. Jonah chapter 4. And let's read beginning in verse 3. Jonah got upset because Nineveh repented. He would have thought that would have been occasion for, uh, for a celebration, for some music. No, Jonah was very upset about it. He didn't like the idea of the Ninevites repenting. Jonah 4 verse 3, Jonah here says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. He was really low. Suicidal thoughts. Verse 4, the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade that he might see what would become of the city. Can you imagine Jonah sitting on this hilltop, looking down on the city of Nineveh, rubbing his hands and saying, maybe they've still got it coming to them, and then I'll feel better. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Jonah was grateful for the plant. This plant grew very quickly. You think about the times when we get a lot of sunshine and a lot of rain here in North Texas. That can happen with uh, plants and even with the weeds in our, in our uh, backyard. As the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. The worm damaged the plant. Jonah is learning a lesson from all of this. And it happened when the sun arose, God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, and he grew faint. He wished death for himself again. He lapses back into this depressed state. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. We can almost hear his voice. Misery, very low. Finding nothing enjoyable in life. Verse 9, God confronted Jonah. He said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. Imagine arguing with God when you're in an emotional state like that. Yes, it is right. Jonah's got a kind of an emotional snit going on here. 
But the Lord said, you had pity on the plant for which you didn't labor, nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left and much livestock? And the book of Jonah ends with this kind of mysterious ending to the book, a rhetorical question. The point here is, get your mind off yourself. When we're low, when we're feeling badly, getting our minds off ourselves can be very, very important. Suicidal thoughts can be amplified by excessive preoccupation with self. Anger can be amplified by excessive preoccupation with ourselves. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul writes to the Philippians, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. There's, of course, a very big Christian mandate for all of us to live by. Get our minds off ourselves. And sometimes, you know, you look at the uh, way others have it, you know, the uh, amputees, the uh, people with prosthetic legs, um, uh, it's a little easier to realize we've actually got it pretty good when we focus on the good things that we do have, our health, food on the table. Get the mind off ourselves and then realize that others don't have it as good as us. Pray for others. Pray for other people. Really pray for other people. I've done it too. I've run through the prayer list too quickly and uh, then finished my prayers and said, well, that wasn't very effective. Uh, it's in, as, in, my, in my opinion, it works better to pray for the sick by taking a small number of the ones of the prayer requests that have come through on any one given occasion and really pray about others rather than just reeling off, reeling off a list of names before God. Volunteer work. Volunteer work is helpful as well. Years ago in Cincinnati, we helped out at the Ronald McDonald House. There was a two-and-a-half-year-old boy there with his grandmother. Came from Colorado to Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, he, his trachea, his vocal cords, uh, were, uh, had some kind of very serious defect. He had a membranous sac, and he was getting one surgery every month. You know, when you look at people like that and then you look at your own state of health, you stop and think to yourself, no, it's not so bad. We've got on August 13th, a couple of weeks from now, a uh, service project in the office. Might be worth thinking about for all of us. But getting our minds off ourselves is also a big factor in uh, getting rid of some of the blues. Getting rid of some of the blues. Um, number six. Number six. In some cultures, Dr. Yapko points out, depression is virtually non-existent. These cultures are primitive by our standards, but they place community at the heart of things. Our culture, Western culture, U.S. culture, by contrast, focuses on the self and social isolation. Rugged individualism is the term, right? The global village is merely an illusion, he said, as no one from the global village is going to pick up your kid from soccer practice. 
In 1990, USA Today ran a survey that found people saw each other socially six times a month. In 2000, that figure was one and a half. And so social cohesion, it continues, social cohesion has been diminished in the culture. One of the causes of depression is simply lack of a social circle, isolation, alienation. I've often thought, you know, of all the people that I've met since I came here to the United States with all of the geographical moves that have taken place and sadly all of the divisions in the church. If all of those folks were still friends, and I mean friends not in the Facebook sense, but friends in the real sense, how many people would still be around who, you know, I could count as, as, as close friends and get together with from time to time? In 1 Kings 19, verse 18, 1 Kings 19, verse 18, getting back to Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18, going to get there. There we go, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. Uh, Paul tells, Paul, God tells Elijah, not Paul, God tells Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You're not alone. You're not alone. But Elijah had to be told, open your eyes, open your eyes. Jesus Christ, our Savior, had social circles around him. It's interesting to analyze how many people were there close to Jesus. The innermost circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Another circle of 12, the disciples, the apostles. And then another circle of 70, the outer circle. And somebody once said that that's the way it should be with us. We need to have three really close friends with whom we can share everything the things that we don't necessarily share with people when we're talking superficially. Three close friends, 12 good friends with whom we do things, and 70, maybe 70 Facebook friends is enough. I've got more than that. I've got almost 3,200. It's insane. I understand. I understand it. 3,200, we're looking at that the other day. Uh, are they really friends? Depends on your definition of friends, I suppose. Anyway, Jesus had it right, and uh, of course, there was well before the time of social media. 3, 12, and 70. Um, from, from time to time, when we are low, and we all get low from time to time, it's not a source of shame to reach out to someone. Reach out to someone. Proverbs 12, verse 25. Proverbs 12 and verse 25. Reach out. Pick up the phone. You know, I'm really not feeling very well today. I'm feeling down. Can we get together? Proverbs 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But a good word makes it glad. Now, there's something there as well, of course. Uh, and that is uh, just a good word. There's a big subject there as well. A good word makes it, makes it glad. But when we're feeling down, it's not a cause of shame. It doesn't prove we're inferior in any way to simply, simply pick up the phone and call someone. Can we get together? I'm just going through a bad day. And I think the flip side of that, of course, is that if anybody ever does that with you, you should be willing to say, 
yes, let's get together, I'm sorry you're not feeling well, rather than, sorry, tough luck, this evening I've got to go to the gym, this evening we're watching Netflix, you know, this evening we're, we've got doing whatever, a brother or sister in the faith is going through something like that, we really should be willing to reach out to that person, and perhaps we're not as good as we should be in doing that kind of thing. Very important. The church is very important. This is one of the facets of church fellowship. This is one of the reasons why we like to spend so much time together after services here in the Dallas congregation. Not so much before services because Dallas, Texas is famous for arriving within the last three minutes, which is fine. Everyone's busy. But people hang out after services and enjoy fellowship. But our fellowship should bond. Our fellowship should be more than just superficial things. So you're not alone. You're not alone. But sometimes we have to open our eyes to the fact that we're not alone and open our hearts and minds to someone who feels alone. Point number seven, point number seven, and this of course is very important, maintain your relationship with your loving Father in heaven. I'm down. I just want to stay in bed. I don't feel like praying. You ever had that experience? I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like talking to God. James 5, verse 13. James 5 and verse 13. James 5 and verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Yeah, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to draw close to God when we're suffering. But I don't feel like praying. I just want to stay in bed. Sometimes we have to force ourselves to pray. Sometimes it takes a little effort to make ourselves pray. I don't feel like studying the Bible. Uh, I don't feel like studying. God might, might figure out that I'm upset. He might get to know that. Well, surprise, surprise. Of course, he knows us very well. He knows what's going on. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. The Apostle Paul here, talking about his moments of difficulty. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. And he said to me, Paul talked to God about the thorn in his flesh. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may, may rest upon me. Most of us don't have to go through what Paul went through. Some say this was his eyes, which I think was very likely. I don't know what Mr. Johnson thinks about that. I think it's very likely that it was the affliction of his eyes, or maybe some say it was his ex-wife or whatever. But uh, he went through a very, very tough time. But maintaining one's relationship with one's creator is important. King David understood this. King David understood this. Psalm 6. Psalm 6. It's surprising how many of the Psalms indicate that David went through some very, very rough times emotionally. Psalm 6. My Bible says here, a prayer of faith in time of distress with stringed instruments. This is a piece of music like we heard in the sermonette. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, 
for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. Save me for your mercy's sake. In death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. Look at that. If that wasn't a moment of melancholy, if that wasn't a low moment, I don't know what. Yeah, we read over these scriptures in the Old Testament. We say, oh, just, it was just David. Maybe he was using hyperbole. Maybe he wasn't actually quite that low. I think he was. I think he literally drenched his couch with his tears. That's how low he was. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, David says. All you workers of iniquity, the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Isn't that wonderful? How many times the scriptures say God hears the voice of his people when they cry to him, especially in their times of anxiety. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Uh, we must bring our problems before God. There was a saying, it's kind of gone around a little bit. Uh, you've probably read it. Don't tell God how big your problem is. Tell your problem how big God is. And of course, God is very big. God is very great. But with depression, you've got to fight it. You've got to fight depression. You can't just sit there and let it take hold of you. Other forms of emotional disorders are different, but you have to fight depression. Depression takes us down into the darkness, into the gloom. But when that happens, there's life at the end of the tunnel. Let's take a look at a few scriptures as we wrap this up in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. This is the prophecy about Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, verse 4. But let's look at what it really says. It does talk about healing. Of course it does. But not just physical healing. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When we get to that Passover service every year in the spring and we take the bread and the wine, we need to remember that Christ's sacrifice is for our healing, not just physical, it is that, not just spiritual, it is that, but also emotional. The scriptures feature that, also emotional. Let's go to Isaiah 61 and verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Famous scripture. This is what was quoted in uh, the Nazareth synagogue in uh, the book of Luke. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61 verse 3. To console those who mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. God's people can see light at the end of the tunnel. When we're down, when we're unhappy, when we've got anxiety, when we're depressed, when we're trying to help somebody who's suffering from depression. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I would venture that there are very, very few people 
including members of God's church who go all the way through life without being impacted by this difficulty of depression, either in themselves or by other people. Let's wrap it up with 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. You know this scripture very likely. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, Peter writes, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. With God's help, with the help of others, depression can be beaten.